I just want to introduce uh, our, our preacher this morning. Over to my right, we have Ben Tillotson. He's going to be up here bringing us God's word. Uh, you may not know Ben. Uh, we for, I refer to him as Benny T. Is that okay to say? Yeah. Lovely, buddy. Uh, ben has served for, for many years faithfully within uh, the ranks of our, our middle school ministry. Uh, ben is a graduate of RTS, and uh, he, has, he has planted himself here along with his family, and, and Ben continues to, to grow in his ministry, and uh, I'm grateful that he's able uh, to bring the word to us this morning. So please uh, join me in praying for Ben, and let's uh, pray for our offerings as well and give thanks to God this morning. So let's pray together. God, we uh, thank you. We give praise to you. Father, this morning as, as we come together to, to sing together unto you the truths of who Christ is and proclaim his name, and now to open your word and receive from your truth that you have for us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that you unite our hearts now. Unite our hearts and illuminate the truth for what you have for us this morning. And I pray that you bless this time and that your name be glorified through it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Morning. How are we all doing? So, um, as Pastor Rob said, my name is Benjamin. Um, if you've been with us through the spring, you know uh, Pastor Paul and the pastors have been going through the book of Romans and that uh, we're going to take a break from the New Testament and dive into the Old Testament as Pastor Joe did last Sunday in Psalms. And I'm going to ask for your patience because today we're going to take a break from that and we're going to jump back into the New Testament and we're going to be in the book of James. Um, some context here. Um, after Jesus came back, uh, from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, uh, he gave what we call the Great Commission, right? To make disciples of the nations. Not just to share the gospel, but to make disciples. This meant a lot of effort um, goes into not just teaching the word, but discipling those who hear. Um, and even today, uh, we, even though we have, you know, the a much easier ability to travel further distances than they did back in this time. You know, we still send emails, call, text, that sort of thing. Well, in, in this time, they definitely didn't always have two, three, four weeks to spare to walk, ride, sail, or wherever they needed to go to have a conversation. So a big part of this discipling was writing letters. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, 27 of the books, of those 27, 21 are epistles slash letters. So we come to James. Um, now we're diving in in chapter 5 here. We're going to be in chapter 5, verses 7 through 20, which is the end of the book. Um, but for context, you know, in chapter 1, it is addressed to the 12 tribes in dispersion. That is the Jewish tribes scattered amongst the nations, those who are not geographically as close to Jerusalem. Uh, they're kind of out there on their own, scattered among the nations. Uh, and James is writing this not so much as a letter to try and win them to Christ, but writing a letter of discipleship to those already won to Christ. Uh, he encourages them to tie their faith to actions, to trust God, not to stray, and in our text today, to be patient. So with that, let's turn to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. Starting in verse 7. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of our Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. So, what we're talking about this morning in relation to this text is patience. But what's the first thing you think of when it comes to patience? When you hear that word, where does your mind go? I can tell you personally, for me, it's waiting in line at the grocery store. That's where my mind goes when I hear the word patience, uh, especially when I'm in line behind someone trying to negotiate the price of Fig Newtons with the cashier. It's not, Winn-Dixie isn't the spot for that. Um, but that's not really the kind of focus we're looking at today. It's important, it's important, and it's good to be patient in that situation, to not get upset. But there's so much more to patience here. Um, this is focusing on the patience that every Christian here is exercising right now, patiently waiting for Jesus. Whether you and I are doing it well is another question, but every believer is waiting for Jesus. Christian, we live a life with a focus to the eternal reign of Christ. We patiently wait for him. We are chosen, called, justified, sanctified by God. And that's the focus of this sermon. It's patience, but patience with an eye to Christ. And that's the title of this sermon, an eye to Christ. So through this sermon, we're really going to be asking, what does patience mean? And the first point we're going to get to is patience means pursuing. 
Start in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Patiently pursuing Jesus. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. One day Christ will return. When that is, I have no idea. It could be five years from now, it could be 10,000 years from now, but Jesus will return. But a farmer doesn't just wait. It talks about waiting for the rain. The farmer's just not like, okay, I'm just gonna sit here and wait for the rain. He is active, he anticipates. A farmer knows the results of what their work should bring. And Christian, we know the result of what God's work will bring. God's work is bringing and will fully come to pass when Christ returns. We know it, we anticipate it, we patiently wait for it. But this is not a workless patience. You know, after all, with the example with the farmer, the farmers work the ground. Um, and in addition to this, we just jump back a few chapters in this same book, back to James chapter 2. In verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Does the farmer not work the land, sow the seed? He cannot make the grain come, but he can prepare the ground. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There's two aspects I want to touch on here, okay? So, first is your salvation. That is, the work of Christ in your life. Paul uses the same phrase, establish your heart, over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. There he says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father and at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There's clearly a work of God, right? And that goes on in our hearts to establish our hearts. And this phrase, you know, establishing our hearts, it clearly has a tie to Christ's return. Um, but the second part I want to focus on here is that we're not passive observers in our lives. Your salvation is a work of God. But as God works in you, there is work to do. Like we just saw with preparing the grounds, this says establish your hearts. In other words, stand firm in your faith. Build up your faith amidst all the hardships of life. Establish your faith. Sow it, prepare it for times, strengthen it. And then comes the next question. Okay, how? How do I establish my heart? How do I build it up? How do I build up my faith? And the easiest answer is don't neglect the things God has given you to do just that. First, we'll start with prayer. How many times have you had a pastor stand right here and talk to you about prayer? It is vitally important to the Christian life. God has given us prayer. He's given us a means to speak with him. And there's a couple of ways we pray. But uh, you've heard Pastor Paul talk about this before, so I'm just going to touch on it briefly. You know, if you're like, hey, I don't know how to pray, 
honestly, just start. God, I'm going through this right now. I'm struggling with this. I am struggling to see where your plan is at this. Or God, you know, I am, I really need this job. I'm really working hard for it. You know, stuff like that. Just start praying. There's stuff to pray about. Now, these are more like painted prayers, right? You get out your canvas, you get out your brush, and you really paint that picture before God. Like, God, this is where I am in life. But that's not the only type of prayer. It's super important to have that type of prayer. But there's also the shorter prayer, the snapshot, uh, the picture prayer. Uh, I'm going in to take a test. God, I'm nervous about this test. Help me do well. I'm going in for a job interview. God, I really need to do well in this job interview. Just short little things that you send up on your way into doing daily life. So but there's both of these, and they're both really important. So then that's prayer. What's next? Okay. Time in the Word. God has given us His Word, the Bible. God primarily speaks to us through His Holy Word. That is His primary means of communication to us. We have to spend time in it. We have to dig into it. There's, there's the way we dig into it, you know, devotionally. We take sections one at a time, and we just apply small sections of scripture to our life and really meditate on them. And then there's the just informationally. It's important for us to, you know, read the Bible to know what it says. Who's Adam? Who's Eve? How did they fall? Uh, who's Noah? What happened there? Then Moses, and then the books of Judges, and then the major and minor prophets, and then Jesus, right? Just kind of informational. It's important to know all that. But know that if that's all you do, you're not really devotionally applying it to your life. You have to do both. And then thirdly, it's the church. Your commitment to gathering with fellow believers under the exhortation of the gospel. That is a necessity to the Christian life. I tend to hear this line. I love Jesus, hate the church. I love Jesus, I hate the church. And to be honest, it's really hard for me not to get depressed when I hear that. Um, I'm not going to dive into a whole myriad of the reasons and address every single one, but let me just say this. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. If Jesus is the bridegroom, who is the bride? The bride is the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Now, I'm going to use this illustration. I'm not married, so forgive me for presuming, but I feel this illustration is fairly self-explanatory, so I don't feel like I'm overstepping any bounds here. Um, and as a side note, this illustration assumes a healthy marriage. So say you're standing there, you're married, someone comes up to you and says, hey man, how's it going? I really enjoy hanging out with you. We should really do that more often. Let's go bowling, watch a movie, something like that. And you're like, yeah man, I'll, I'll talk to my wife and we'll get something set up. And they're like, no, wait, hold on. I want to hang out with you. Your wife honestly kind of hate her. You know, I'm sorry, I just, I kind of do. Okay, so once again, not married, but once again, I feel this is fairly self-explanatory. What's the right response to that? No, you can't punch them. Um, it should be something sort of like, hey, buddy, listen, we're a package deal here, okay? Um, you will hate her. We have a problem. This isn't going to work out. And it's, it's a similar thing here. The church is the bride of Christ. When I hear people say, oh, I love Jesus, hate the church, it doesn't make sense. The church is the bride of Christ. You, you can't look at Christianity and say, okay, cool, this massive foundational part of it, we're just going to cut that out and do that away with that. We don't need that. Let's get that out of here. 
You know, it's like cutting up the Bible into just the pieces that you find convenient and throwing away the rest. Actually, Thomas Jefferson did just that. There's actually a thing out there called the Jefferson Bible that he made in 1820. And basically, he just took a razor, cut out all the supernatural, anything that made Jesus divine. He just cut it all out and pasted the rest together. And that was it. That was his Bible. But what do you have? That's not the Bible. That's what you find convenient with all the inconvenient stuff that you don't want to address tossed aside. That's not God's word. Uh, you can't live a spiritually healthy life cut off from the universal body of believers, the church. Now, let me be clear. You can be saved. I'm not saying if you don't go to church, you're not saved. The fact that the blood of Christ has washed away your sins cannot be changed by any action of you or myself, no matter how dumb it is. But the bride of Christ, Christian together, we are to be that bride. We are to seek to build up the body, meant to be built up by the body, be built up as a part of it. Don't let anything in your heart or societal norms or whatever stop you from establishing your heart. Lean into what the gospel says. Lean into the resources Christ has given you to establish your heart, to build up your faith. So be patient, but with an eye to Christ's return, standing firm in your faith, pursuing Christ. This takes us then to verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I don't know about you, but what, do, what happens when I go through times and I have to be patient? What I like to do is complain. I like to complain, but I don't just like to complain about the situation. I tend to just kind of eat that. You know, whenever a tough situation comes, I just internalize it. I don't talk about it. I'm locked down. What happens is when other people around me start poking at that, They're like, hey, Ben, how's that going? What about this? Hey, that's when I start to be like, hey, leave it alone. Stop it. I don't want to talk about it, but they keep poking. And that's when I'm tempted to just blow up. I lash out. I'm not lashing out about the situation. I'm lashing out at people, people who probably have nothing to do with the situation I'm going through, whether it's financial, health, job. I just lash out because of that. And in the context of this letter, most of the readers, those you know, Jews in dispersion, they're being persecuted and they're poor. They're out of their community and there's a lot they're going through. And James is saying, hey, don't lose focus. Don't grumble against one another. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. There's going to be a lot of stuff you go through. You're going to go through a lot. And that's our second point. Patience means suffering. Patience means suffering. Basically, everything James is talking about right now, uh, be patient, establish your hearts, don't grumble. It's all with an eye to Christ's return, an expectation of Christ's return. Like I said, even though we don't know when, but we expect it. We might be tempted to look at this text and say, okay, it says he's knocking at the door, so he's about to happen, right? Well, Second Peter tells us that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So good it be tomorrow. 
Yeah. Should it be 10,000 years from now? Yeah. Do I or you know? Absolutely not. So don't get caught up in the when. To be blunt, it's really not that important. How you live your life establishing your heart shouldn't change based on when Christ comes. You should live your life as if it's going to be 2,000 years from now. But establish your hearts. Expect it. Know what's going to happen. Just understand we don't know when. Don't go spending all your life savings on three or four vacations because, hey, I don't get to take money with me to heaven, and if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, might as well spend it all. Don't do that. You don't know when. None of us know when. Um, and the hard part of that is it means we've got to go through suffering. Sanctification is a thing that God brings us through to build us up, but it's hard. Patiently pursuing Christ's call on your life can and will mean suffering, enduring pain, and discomfort. This text gives the examples of remaining steadfast. As an example, it talks about the prophets and of Job. The prophets tended to live, to not live the most glamorous lives, if you know anything about them. Um, for example, Ezekiel had to lie on one side for 390 days and then roll over onto his other side for 40 days straight. And during that time, he was uh, cooking all his food over his own dung. So read Ezekiel 4, not the most glamorous. There you go. Uh, Job is another example given. Uh, if you read just the first two chapters of the book of Job, in the first two chapters, he lost all his children, all his possessions, and all his health in two chapters. And with that, it was Satan's express purpose that he curse God. And he didn't. He wasn't perfect. But it says a lot about him that James refers to him here as an example. So we patiently are waiting for Christ and willing to pursue God's call in our lives no matter what. No matter what, we pursue God's call in our lives. So then that takes us to verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, if you're just reading this through, this verse kind of seems like a disconnect, right? You're like, wait, what's going on? He's going from be patient, they're suffering, this, this, that. By the way, don't make any promises. And you're like, wait, what? Where did that come from? Um, but that actually does take us to our next point, and we'll uh, flush it out in a second. But the third point is, patience means patience. And you might say, yeah, Ben, no duh. But I don't want us to get so caught up in, well, patience means uh, pursuing Jesus. Patience means uh, suffering. I still want us to remember, patience means patience. It means just what it says. <clears throat> As an illustration, I'm gonna look at my own life, sorry. Um, so thinking back when I was probably nine or 10 years old, some of my best friends used to live down the street from me. And so I would walk over to their house or they would walk over to my house. And at this point, we wouldn't call. We'd be like, that might have been smart looking back on it now. Hey, you home? We would just walk out the door and walk down there. We'd find out whether or not they were home when we knocked on the door. That was it. Um, but I'm nine or 10 years old. And I remember walking down to his house and starting to think, man, I really hope he's home. And so then I start this thing where I start trying to bargain with God for him to be home so we could hang out. So I'm like, okay. Now keep in mind, nine or 10, my devotional life isn't at its strongest. So naturally I'm like, well, I'll use that. So I say, okay, God, 
if my friends are home, how about I do double devotions tomorrow? Wait, not good enough? The next two days, double devotions. Not good, okay, how about five? The next five days, I'll do double devotions if he's home. Um, and now that might seem like a minor example, but we can all apply that to our lives. Hey, God, I, I really want this job. If, if I'll do X, Y, and Z if you just get me this job, or whatever it is. I don't really have to flush this out for you guys. You understand this. Um, but then you got to think, okay, Ben, out of the times, all the times my friends were home and I got to hang out that day, how many of those times did I actually do the double devotions? I promised I would. Not that many. So here he's saying, uh, guys, don't try and bargain with God. Don't be like, because you guys know, like how many times have you tried to bargain with God, something's happened and you've gotten what you've wanted and then you're just like, man, I really promised that? Man, I'll get to that later, right? Um, James is saying, hey, don't do these extra oaths. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not swear by heaven or earth or try to strike a deal with God. Trust him, right? Because we're saying, hey, okay, we've got to be patient. But then we're like, okay, so I've got to be patient. But God, what if I put this little extra in the tithe offerings this morning? You're going to let things go my way, right? How about a little more, right? You get it. Um, he's saying, we all have this temptation, but you can't bribe God. It isn't so much better, sorry, isn't it so much better to just trust him? Instead of trying to force your way, isn't it better to just trust him? God, you're good, you're gracious, you're all-powerful, you're loving, you have called me, you're drawing out my sin and putting it to death. Your will be done. Isn't that so much better? So what is James saying? He's saying, okay, don't make rash vows. And don't, uh, and don't try and bargain your way with God. And also, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Shouldn't your word be valued enough, responsible enough that when you say something, you don't have to swear by someone or something else? Douglas J. Moo, he's a commentator. He does a good job of fleshing this out at James. He says, our truthfulness should be so consistent and dependable that we need no oath to support it. A simple yes or no should suffice. Our mere word should be utterly trustworthy as a signed document, legally correct and complete. So be patient with an eye to Christ's return, standing firm in your faith, not grumbling against one another. This is not a banishment of all promises. We see many positive examples of promises in Scripture, one being Christ's promise to us. But are we willing to go down whatever path God has before us? not trying to make our own way happen over God's way. With that, we move on to verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Does, temp that does, does temp is suffering tempting you to impatience? Does going through suffering tempt you to not want to wait 
This is a summary of everything we've talked about. Um, but there is suffering for the sake of the gospel. When we are saved, we're not, we're not guaranteed an absence of hardship. We're actually guaranteed to suffer. Um, but what do we do in that case? We pray. And that's our next point. Patience means pray. Please understand the power of prayer. Not our power. You and I are not powerful. But God is. So, if you pray, and the one you're praying to is the ultimate authority, power, and creator of all things, then there's power in prayer. Because prayer is about who you pray to. But we can pray to anything. The perfect example is we find over in 1 Kings, when you have Elijah, who was alone a prophet left of God, and he went before Israel and said to them, hey, I'm but one man, um, but let's have a competition. I'll call upon the Lord to light this burnt offering. And y'all are worshiping this false god, Baal. Get 450 of his prophets, and they'll all come over and do the same thing. We'll kind of have a, a pray-off. Um, so if we turn to 1 Kings in chapter 18, I'm going to read just a couple of snippets because it's actually a really long section, but we're going to start in 25 and 26. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared <clears throat> and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And then we move on to verse 33 of 1 Kings 18. And he, Elijah, uh, put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it out on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Don't lose sight of who God is. He is loving, gracious, merciful, abiding in steadfast covenantal love for his people. It's all true. But... A lot of times we focus so much on this that we lose sight of his power. And here's why. I think it's because in our minds we all struggle with the, if God is good, why does bad things happen? And I think our natural inclination when that happens is to say, okay, then God, maybe God isn't in total control, right? So maybe he's not, he doesn't have any control over that. That's why they happen. And we kind of take God's power down a notch in our minds. But those things are still all within God's control. He is all those things we just said, good, mighty, just, loving, but powerful, all powerful. 
He's not a, and he's also involved. You've all probably heard the illustration of the, the watchmaker, right? People like to think God is a watchmaker God. Yeah, you know, like there's these old clocks that don't run on battery. You wind them up, and depending on how long you wind them up, they'll run. People sometimes like to think of God that way. He made the universe, wound it up, and then just let it go. Watchmaker God, not involved. That is not our God. That is not the God who is loving, omnipotent, involved, caring, and jealous for your praise. He is involved. So when he says, pray, I'm listening, you have God's ear. He listens and answers. His answer may be no, but he listens. And that is when we come to what we're talking about. If his answer is no, we're not trying to bargain. We're not trying to make deals. Submitting to his will, to his plan, is a part of patience. Not trying to tithe a certain amount to make things go our way or do double devotions. Verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Worship God. Often we want God's attention only when bad times are happening. Worship him in the good times and the bad times. Praise him. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The use of all this is that when James switches to sickness. He says, hey, what about sickness? He doesn't take it out of the church. He doubles down in the church. What do you do when you get sick? You just shut off, don't tell anyone, keep it to yourself. No, bring in the church, bring the elders over here, pray over the one who is sick, anoint them in the name of the Lord. But notice what it goes on to say in verses 18 through, or 15 through 18. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. The prayer of the elders is for healing, but not just physical healing spiritual healing as well salvific healing a prayer of faith will save the one who is sick this is salvation this is talking about forgiveness anyone who uh, gets better from being sick isn't ultimately cured still has to die eventually we all do we all have to face death but the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick now, that'd be a really weird thing to say if this was just talking about physical healing, right? Because how many instances do we encounter in Scripture and in life where we pray for healing and the answer's no? This is saying if someone's sick, pray for them. But make sure you're praying for their salvation also. Because if they make that prayer of faith, that is, they trust in Christ alone for their salvation, they will be saved. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. God may heal sickness in this life. He may. He can. But he is healing all his children from sin, even if we have to suffer through sickness in the present. God will do away with all sickness, all disease, all sin, and all its effect on his creation. 
And in this, we see the text circling right back around to patience with an eye to Christ's return. We already talked about how powerful prayer can be, like Elijah's prayer. You know, Christ may be, Christ's healing may be of the sickness in this life, um, but he is healing uh, that sin problem we have, and that healing is forever. He died on the cross, and that work will echo across creation forever. Do not stop praying. Do not stop expecting. And if you want something to do, pray. So, as we bring down to the conclusion, I want to make sure we understand that patience here uh, is a place we seek to be in and to grow in in our Christian walk. It affects, on, it affects how we behave in relation to God, to ourselves, and to others around us. That means our brothers and sisters in Christ that are around us. Um, and not just them, but also those who may not be our brothers and sisters. Verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Sanctification is something God uses in the life of every believer, using tough situations in life to grow us in our relationship with God. Um, but what if someone goes through tough times and they're not a believer? You know, the, the believer has the foundation of Christ to rely on. The unbeliever doesn't. So there are generally two responses. One, Holy Spirit opens their eyes. They are opened to the grace and mercy of Christ, and they see what Christ has shown those around him. The other is they're done. They leave. They want nothing more to do with it. It's like they had a, a deal with God in their head. Okay, God, I go to church, and then you give me this kind of life. And then when life happens, they're done. They're out of there. So then, what do we do? Um... It's so, I mean, we all talk about patience, but it's one thing to have, be patient when you have, you know, the hope of Christ. You have Christ's promise in your life. But even those of us who have that aren't perfect. Ten out of ten times we fall short of where we need to be. Every single time. But then you put that in position to the unbeliever uh, who doesn't have Christ's promise. Um, you're going to struggle there. You really are. You're going to wander, as the text says. Um, but what do we do to bring them back? You know, what do we do? We go, we go into church. They say, hey, man, did you hear about so-and-so? And you're like, yeah, man. He really went off the deep end. And you're like, ah, yeah, it happens. I guess I'll see you next Sunday. And that's it. No. We go after them. Pray for them. A prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Pray without ceasing that God would bring their hearts to that place. Love them, even if they grow hostile against the gospel. Do not stop pursuing them. We can be witnesses based on how we live our lives, how we love well. Even if they don't want to listen to the gospel, they can't help but see how we live our lives as long as we are pursuing them. And if we start to think of our lives, of all of this, in relation to Christ's return, if we live life with an eye to Christ's return, this stuff is just going to start happening. Stuff's going to start popping up. You're going to start dealing with it, and you're going to fall short. And then other stuff's going to pop up, and then you're going to fall short. And it's sanctification, and God's working on you, and he's growing us all, and it just keeps going. Um, but never think that God's work in your life is beyond your reach or in anyone's life. 
is outside of his reach. It's going to require a lot of everything we've talked about, and it's going to require God to work. Never forget that. God's work in our lives is always happening, but it is his work. And the different steps of that work are in his time. He has you in a certain stage in life right now. You're being sanctified. You're going through things. When will it end? That's his work. He's working on you. Verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's in God's perfect plan, his perfect timing. He has chosen you and I to be instruments, to be his instruments to spread the gospel. Be patient with where he is taking you. Pursue him where he has you. Be patient with an eye to Christ's return, standing firm in your faith, praying for yourself and others that Christ will work in our hearts and that we may seek his will, not ours.